From the silver screen to the GM screen, Never Say Die asks, what can we learn from movies to enhance our RPG experience? This season, we're all about kids on bikes movies, where kids 18 years of age or younger get themselves into and out of trouble and keep their agency while doing so, usually in a specific location, which is essential to the plot. I'm Rafe, film critic. And I'm Drew, game enthusiast. And today we're talking 1995's Now and Then, written by I. Marlene King of Pretty Little Liars fame, directed by Leslie Linka Gladder and starring Christina Ricci, Rosie O'Donnell, Thora Birch, Melanie Griffith, Gabby Hoffman, Demi Moore, Ashley Aston Moore, and Rita Wilson, among others. Oh yeah, okay, but among others includes Brendan Fraser, Janine Garofalo, Hank Azaria, Rumor Willis, Bonnie Hunt, Cloris Leachman, and Devin Sawa. Yeah. Yeah, this is this is a stacked cast. <laughs> this is a stacked cast. So, Drew, you picked this movie. So we're going to start, as we usually do, with the elevator pitch, which is, you know, a, just a simplified version of the movie's plot. Uh, you picked the movie. So, Drew, I'm getting in the elevator. What's your pitch? All right, boss. Here we go. Elevator pitch. Old friends reunite in their hometown because of a promise they made in the summer of 1970. The summer when everything changed. Is that vague and exciting enough for you? I feel like it needs a bum 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 added at the end. (laughs) I think if we included the term stacked cast in the elevator pitch, that probably would have uh, drawn it together. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. Okay, so Drew, why did you choose Now and Then as your pick for this month? Oh, Rafe, there's so many reasons why I chose this one. And I'm going to try to list all of them for you off the top of my head. Uh, The first off is that I feel like this movie is going to exercise the main point of our podcast, which is, you know, it's it's an actually challenge to gamify something like this. This is a film that is so incredibly divergent from everything else we've talked about before. So Goonies, adventure films with a treasure map. Attack the Block, alien invasion in, in urban London. Uh, the Lost Boys, a vampire story focuses on powered characters. And then we've got um, a really nice casual summer uh, where <laughs> young women are kind of learning more about themselves and becoming independent. Uh, yeah, uh, it's like a coming-of-age story. So yeah, re- it's it's such a very different genre of kids on bikes than what we've talked about and i think that's important um it's also from the list of kids on bikes movies it's the only kids on bikes movie that i've found so far that definitely focuses on an all-female protagonist cast you know true most of the films that we've talked about have uh female characters but as we've talked about with goonies and lost boys and attack the block they're characters that are definitely not main characters that have been relegated to the background or the the wisecracking, almost straight person. Um, and this is a, a real focus on it. It's from a time. It's made in a time period we haven't really discussed, which is the 1990s, a very different time to film movies. Uh, yeah. And it's it takes place. Um, let's focus on the the part where the actual story takes place in the 1970s. Something we also haven't talked about. So all told, there's a lot of really good reasons to talk about this one from both a movie standpoint. And a gaming standpoint. Yeah, I can't disagree with any of your reasons. You you gave a different reason. I don't remember if it was on mic when we 
did our last intermission or if it was off mic. So I apologize if I'm uh, 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 revealing some of our private conversation. But one of the things that you talked about with me is that structurally, in a lot of ways, it is similar to Stand By Me, which you feel like is going to be a movie that we are going to discuss and that you wanted to get this one in before we discussed Stand By Me. So this wasn't just a broken record of us saying, oh, just like in Stand By Me. And I almost feel like, like, I'm glad you picked this movie, but I almost feel like now we we have zero reason to do Stand By Me, because if we do Stand By Me, everything we say about that one is going to echo stuff we said here with this one. And I, I, I like that you picked this one instead, because A, I had never seen it before, so it gets us into a, I always enjoy seeing new movies, but uh, uh, B, um, it gets a conversation out there about maybe an underappreciated film. So I'm going to two responses for that. Um, one, I was trying to do both the elevator pitch and the why I chose it and not include the term stand by me. Um, just <laughs> for, the, for the points that you specifically said, I'm glad that you brought it up because it, it is the exception that proves the rule. And two, I still want to talk about stand by me because I think both of these have very similar narrative structures, but deal with two very important issues. And one is the development of a, a coming of age story focusing on women versus a coming of age story focusing on boys and i think it's a very different telling and i think even though the comparison is clearly there they are very different films and narratives i think once you actually examine it so i i still think there for those of you who are uh you know might we worry that we aren't going to talk about stand by me we will definitely have a conversation about that even if it's a special episode yeah okay all right, so Drew, is this a kids on bikes movie? I think it's absolutely a kids on bikes movie. However, all the points that we discussed that make it a kids on bikes movie, it's definitely a kids on bikes movie, but is it a kids on bikes movie that we want to discuss on this podcast? Well, clearly it is because we're going to be discussing it on this podcast. <laughs> nope, episode's over. <laughs> <laughs> the end. Da, 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 da. But I think it it kind of once again, when we sort of set up the idea of young children in a small town that stay in a town that's important to them and they go on adventures, each of those different topics are present in this film, but there's a a very noticeable but to go along with each one of them. And I think that's fine. My question, I guess, should be to you is, Rafe, do you think this is a Kids on Bikes movie? Uh, If you say yes, fantastic. If you say no, I would be interested in seeing this discussion. No, it absolutely is. I mean, heck, the girls spend uh, probably a third of the movie on their bikes. So yeah, absolutely. It's a kids on bikes movie. It is a departure uh, for me in a very unexpected way, because when we first set this up back in our zero session, we said we would be focusing on that part of the kids on bikes experience is that it is adventure, uh, because that gives us something to gamify. And this is not an adventure. This is a mystery and a drama. And that, I have to say, when I was watching it, uh, about halfway through the movie, I was just like, what did he do? He, he strayed. But, but I really dig that you, that you did stray from that. And I, I think that gives us some really interesting talking points to get into. Um, with both Now and Then and Stand By Me, I had those in mind. So when we were listing our, our part where you're like, I think if we use our sound effects now uh, to listen to exactly what we said in our zero session. I would add one more criteria. Please do. uh, Which is there needs to be adventure. And I I know that sounds like a stupid criteria to add, especially when we're talking about using movies as a starting point. But 
there are many movies out there with kids that are dramas and have no adventure. And yeah, maybe you can look at those and convert those to an adventure, but that's not the kind of thing that we're going to be talking about. We want excitement. We want adventure. We want story. Yeah. For me, the important word there is story as well. As you can hear, uh, as you were talking about adventure, I definitely said our definition of adventure may change depending on how uh, we look at it. And some stories just simply journeying from one place to another uh, and having a conversation and discussing stories within stories can be an adventure within itself. Both of those are going to be true for both Now and Then and Stand By Me. Again, which take that sort of travel narrative and mystery narrative and coming-of-age narrative and approach it from very different directions. That's fair. That's fair. But I do agree that this does feel less like an adventure and more like, one, a quest. Yes. And two, a mystery. And there's something else, and I haven't been able to really get grasp what it is because when we start talking about the gamification of this, this is a this is not a one shot. This is a campaign. Yes. And this is really going to be more of a role playing game than it would be an adventure scenario or adventure session. And I think yes. this really starts to test the boundaries. And and when I first watched this a couple months back and, and I will say this, I've watched this three times in the last month. I watched it before I announced what the film was going to be on our, our last intermission because I wasn't 100% sure we could do this, but I wanted <laughs> to try. And I had a bunch of different games in mind that were a, a different form of storytelling mode, which having thought about this, this has been sort of occupying my brain space for the better part of a month. I think we can do this in a traditional role-playing sense using systems that we talk about frequently rather than what I originally thought, which was we were going to have to go think outside of the box in order to tell these stories. Well, and that, and that brings us to our next question. Uh, when did you watch this for the first time? Yeah, um, I'd say about two months ago, three months ago. Uh, it was definitely... really. Yeah. No, I had never seen it um, until the list that showed up on the Kids on Bikes community Facebook group Wow. They listed and I saw now and then. And so what I did was I went through every list and I just kind of read like the synopsis, not a full synopsis. I didn't want to know what the plot was, but I wanted to see what people thought. And I was like, there was a time in, I think in 1996. So this came out in 1995. In 1996, I got my first job at a video store. I worked at a lot of them. And I remember the day this came out on VHS and I remember shelving it. You know, it was a mom and pop store, so I think we only had one copy. Maybe we had two copies. Unlike the times I've worked at Blockbusters where we have like 30 copies. Right. <laughs> and I remember shelving it and looking at it going, oh, this is definitely a girls movie. Oh, coming of age girls movie. Oh, coming of age girls movie that has like two separate narratives. Like it absolutely did not seem like something that was of any interest to me at the time. As a, a serious film student, I was watching a lot of black and white Swedish films. You know, I was watching, I remember like specifically watching uh, Akira Kurosawa samurai films and Ingmar Berman black and white flicks. So at the time, this wasn't a thing that really interested me. But I also recognize, and this is something we'll definitely get into more, that a film like this, a coming of age film, is going to mean something more because I was 18, 19 years old when this film came out. It's going to mean more to people who are younger than us who grew up watching this sort of a film around when their ages are the same as the the characters in it. Yeah, no, I this is this is a uh where are we in January of 2022. I think I saw it in in probably October or November of 2021. 
for the first time. I, I find that so ridiculously hard to believe because of all the movies we've watched so far. This one has the foundation and the vibe closest to the Kids on Bikes campaign that we were playing that we started in 2020. So it's like, again, partway through the movie, and I was like, this is where Drew got the feeling for that game. And now I'm learning that you had never seen it two years before when you were creating that adventure. So that that says something. I'm not sure what yet, but that says something as to the environment, the atmosphere of now and then, as especially like the gamification of it. It's it, it feels right. Yeah, and I think part of it is, I think if you and I hadn't taken part in that Kids on Bikes campaign, I don't know if I would have enjoyed this film as much because there was that level of familiarity I was watching. And I, I think the, the you know, I, I try to watch a movie twice before we talk about it, at least, you know, once to either learn it or familiarize myself with it in the second time to take notes. And the second time I, I watched this, the notes, it's like eight or nine pages, and it's less about the notes of the film and more about the similarities to our, our time in our small town. <laughs> and it's like, this really is interesting. And like, Oh, I wish I had done. I, there are parts in this movie. I wish I had done in our campaign. I wish I had seen it beforehand because it is a really good kids on bikes campaign setting yes. rather than a kids on bikes adventure setting. And I, when I'm using kids on bikes, I'm talking about just not just the sub sub genre of film, but also the kids on bikes RPG system. It's, it is uh, exemplary, and I think it's one that folks should definitely check out. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. All right, well, let's get into discussing— Oh, well, no, no, sorry. Rafe, when was the first time you watched it? Uh, for this episode, so in the last—well, uh, for me, actually, in the last 24 <laughs> hours. Uh, I watched it for well, the there first we time go. yesterday, uh, getting ready to record this. And, you know, I, I because of my other podcast, I don't tend to have time to watch movies repeatedly in preparation. I watch them once, and I take copious notes of stuff that I want to talk about. But as I said, I mean, that's, I, I liked it. There are some things about it that I don't like. I don't know that we'll get into those points as we talk about the movie. Well, I mean, we might. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I agree with you. I think anybody who wants to run a kids on bikes campaign, uh, long-term, which is, uh, you know, we've talked a couple episodes ago, that tends to be where my brain is anyway. Mm -hmm. I don't think about one shots and, and, and quick, quick things. I, I think long-term and I think this, this has the right atmosphere and foundation for that. So. Uh, all right, let's go ahead and get into talking about the movie. The ratings for this so far, uh, it sits at 30% at Rotten Tomatoes, which is not a very highly reviewed movie. And I can think of a few reasons why, but for our purposes, I think it's a much better film than that. The audience score is at 82%. So audiences like this movie, critics didn't. I can tell you, only having seen it one time, exactly why that is. That makes perfect sense to me. But yes. uh, let's let's go ahead and get into it. We talk about the good, the bad, and the ugly. What are the highlights? What are the bad bits? What are the worst bits about this film? As always, we start with the good. Drew, what is good about Now and Then? I've got a bunch of these. But I think most importantly, I think the acting by the four female leads is phenomenal. There wasn't a time, and they're all... Actresses who have gone on, for the most part, to have really incredible careers. And I wasn't watching them and thinking about the entire span of their acting careers. I was watching them and, and seeing them inhabit these characters. I believe them in as these characters. Yeah. Uh, which is incredibly important because it's very difficult for me to look at Christina Ricci and not think Wednesday Adams, right? Um, <laughs> and I, I have interviewed a lot of people about 
what this movie means to them. It's probably something that we're going to go into more detail when we get into our intermission about this episode, because I think there's a lot of meta-commentary about this that doesn't necessarily need to be discussed today. But a lot of people definitely look at this movie and go, ah, I'm that character. In the same way that, you know, when we get to which kid are you, we'll have that discussion as well. But, um, you know, like, Christina Ricci is Roberta. I get it. Like, I, I'm going to look at her and think of that character just as much as Wednesday Adams. Maybe not as much as Wednesday Adams. But, you know, I think that everyone did a phenomenal job. I think the direction for the acting is really well done. Agreed. For my first good, I, I just have to say the, the Gaslight Edition. The, the neighborhood, mm-hmm. the look, the feel, uh, there, it is discussed a little bit in the movie, you know, why it is the, the way it is, you know, this planned community and, and the suburbs and such. And it, it just feels so, it, it feels on par with, the town in the Goonies, like as far as like, this is, this is just this idyllic setting for this kind of a story. And I, I loved it. Everything from the, the flickering lights of the street lights, you know, because they're not just the, the halogen bulbs to, uh, you know, just the, the watching these kids ride their bikes around and the, the lines of bikes and the red Rover that they're playing at the beginning, all of it just, it just really set the right mood for this story. And I think it was brilliantly executed. I agree. Yeah. And I I think the next thing I want to talk about plays off of that, which is there's a scene really early on in the film where they need to call a meeting of the the four friends. (laughs) And one friend signals via flashlight. The other one signals to the next friend with a pulley system, which I I looked at that and like, these are people, this is a pre-cell phone, pre-technology. Yep. Uh, They don't want their parents to know. Uh, two friends have walkie-talkies. And what I love about it is you can't get that outside of a suburb or a right. neighborhood. But it also speaks to how each friend works with the other. Uh, and that's the next point I want to think is I feel like this is a really good friend group. But within these four friends, there are sub-clicks yes. that work really well. And while unlike... You know, we were talking about how Steph sort of has a scene with each of the other Goonies in one form or another, and I really appreciated that. It's not as well-rounded, so some of our characters really don't have good moments with the others, but we do have these subgroups, and I really appreciated that because that is how our friends work. We're all, we are not all on equal footing in our own friends group. It's probably how we should be, but it's not necessarily the truth. And so there are deeper relationships in, uh, between certain friends and that kind of what I, I guess I'll call it the coding scene or the uh, alert scene or the alarm scene really talks to that. Gotcha. Um, for me, one of my other good things is that the script itself has some really fantastic lines of dialogue. Like I'm always looking for good quotes. And uh, even, even though I've, I've had to train myself over the course of this podcast that when I'm watching movies for this podcast, I'm looking at it for gamification. I still found myself writing down quotes that, that were said in the movie, like little, little things like, you know, your parents aren't always right. What appears to be is not at all. Or when Sam's meltdown about her dad, he's all I have left and he lied. And it's like just little, little punctuated lines throughout the script that just really just moved me. And I I love it when films do that. 
you know, because you don't get that with with every film. I mean, there's there's definitely even in in the th- couple of movies we've watched here, I, I can't say there's a million times that I've written down quotes, but in this one, there were quite a few quotes that just stood out to me, and I, I like that in a script. Yeah, I th- I think for the most part, the conversations that the girls have with one another, and, and it's really it's the conversations that the girls have. Yes, I wouldn't say that all dialogue in this film is immaculate. Not no. immaculate. Cause that, clearly, that's setting for a very high standard. But like, <laughs> some of the women I talked with are like, oh, no, this is how we spoke to each other. Like, this feels authentic. This doesn't feel like a movie. I cannot talk to how young women discuss each other. I can talk about how young boys talk to one another. Uh, and it's not nearly as eloquent as as some of the dialogue in this film. And I think that's a good reflection. And, and it, again, why I, I sought... Uh, other points of view when when reviewing this one. But yeah, I think specifically the 1970s young women, I don't feel the dialogue between the adults in this are nearly as good. And I don't feel like everyone's interactions uh, with the townsfolks are fantastic. But yeah, absolutely. There's some really quotable lines and it feels authentic. And, and that's the other thing too, is um, just to, to go with your point, I feel like not just the Gaslight Edition, which is the name of the suburb, which we, we're... They never actually refer to it. We just see it at the opening shot as the camera pans into the suburb. We see the Gaslight Edition. They they maybe mention it once. Yeah. She, Sam does mention it in her in her narration. Yeah. Yeah, the narration, sure. But, like, actually in, in dialogue. Right. Um, it's just kind of our neighborhood, you know. The time capsule is very much caught. And you, you had mentioned, too, that um, the Gaslight Edition feels like a real place. It is. It's a very real, very white place, too. We should just mention that. It doesn't need to be dwelling on it, but it's like, this is definitely white suburbia in the 1970s. Yes. Um, and it's a, it's a good snapshot of of that. I was not alive in 1970, but I, I have been in places like this, and it, it definitely felt authentic. Yeah. Uh, my last of the good, you actually kind of just hit on, and that is the feeling, I feel like, and I, maybe I'm generalization in, in, in saying this, but because the script was written by a woman, I felt like it captured really well the spirit of these being female characters. It did not feel like this was just a kids on bikes movie and, oh, let's make the characters female. It felt like a group of girls hanging out together which is a very different vibe than a group of boys hanging out together, as we've seen in our other movies. And I, I feel like there was differentiation in how those characters talk and act and, and their topics and, and all that that really felt genuine to me. And again, not having been a teenage girl, I can't testify as to the accuracy of it, but the feeling was different than let's just make these characters female. And I, I really uh, respect that. Yeah. And this is, I mean, we have a female producer, a female writer. I mean, that's nice. That's, that is not something that is common even today, unfortunately. Unfortunately. So in 1995, which is an incredibly problematic time for, for movies, the fact that this movie even got made, how it got made is very impressive. And it also sadly is probably, (laughs) to look behind the curtain, one of the reasons it's so poorly reviewed. Um, I think that's a good point. I think it's very easy to and unfortunate to be able to look back and at the time period and go, well, this is why it's been dismissed. But I also think just from the sheer number of think pieces I have read, um, why this film is being, I don't want to say rediscovered, but uh, it's definitely why a film like this is being reconsidered and and, uh, reexamined now. Yeah. All right. Anything else good that you want to discuss before we move towards the uh, negative aspects of it? 
No, no, I, I think that I think that really covers it. Okay, uh, I'm going to kick us off with the bad, uh, mm-hmm. and this is probably my biggest grievance with this film. Uh, is it, you know, having read the description, having watched the trailer before I sat down, and having looked at the cast, the way the story is sold through its descriptions, through its trailers, through all that kind of stuff, is that this tells two stories about these girls in two different eras of their lives, in 1995 and in 1970. It doesn't really tell a story about them in 1995. Now, I feel like they could have excised the the frame there, because it really is only the beginning and end of the movie, and had a, a very poignant coming-of-age story that would not have been hindered, other than kind of the moral of the story comes back into play at the end with them as adults. But I feel like the biggest reason that you have those bookends was to get some bigger stars than Christina Ricci, Thora Birch, Gabby Hoffman, and Ashley Aston Moore were at the time. So let's let's have them as adults so that we can get Rosie O'Donnell and Melanie Griffith and Demi Moore and Rita Wilson in here. Hundred percent. That is that is absolutely <laughs> when I, I just have it underlined the modern the modern framing device. It doesn't work. No. It doesn't add anything to the film. Well, I don't want to say that. I'm sure it does for some people. I found it to be distracting. Uh, I didn't find it to be tonally much better. I think it's a really interesting idea. I know that, a little bit of meta-commentary here, I know that there was a pitch to do a now-and-then television show where we have the modern modern stories re- uh, you know, flashing back to Remember When. It's a great idea. It's been done. It's yeah. been done very successfully. It's done been done very poorly. Uh, I don't think this is an example of it being done really well. And I no. think you're right. I think it it really feels like a gimmick more than anything else. And I think that also contributes to the lower rating of the film because as a Agreed. critic, as a critic, I'm looking at that going, this is it's manipulative to the audience to bring in these big names at that era and to to underuse them and and not really to have a point other than oh baby like the whole pact that they make that if any of them needs them they will drop what they're doing and go to them and what she needs is support because she's having a baby that's not a desperate need that's not like oh you know that, that i could think of like a billion other things that would cause them to to reunite and it be an effective part of the story Instead, it, it just felt kind of complacent. Well, I disagree with you a little bit on that one. Um, again, not having a baby myself or even not being a parent myself, I can't speak to the desperate need for that. But I do think it does pull in uh, a little bit of the narrative thread because one of them, one of the four friends is having the first child of the group and they are friends in their childhood. And this, having a child in the home, you know, so... Chrissy is having a child in the home with the treehouse does sort of tie in those themes uh, of their childhood a little bit. And I I kind of don't hate that because there is such an interesting look on who we are as kids and who we become as adults, which I think one of the complaints that Ebert lodged against this film is it felt, uh, especially the adult parts of this, a little bit too much like a sitcom. And I think that energy feels very sitcom-y when we start dealing with the adults. I don't think it's terrible. I, I should pr- say, I think there's the nugget of a really good idea there, but the energy and the tone 
of what is happening with our adult actresses versus our kid actresses is so incredibly different that it doesn't feel like all the emotional growth and the storytelling that we've been seeing pays off in the same way. Right. And it, and it's like actually a bit of a bummer. Uh, not that everything has to have a happy ending, but like you are really rooting for these girls. And in the beginning, we're told, oh, one's a successful writer and one's a successful actress. And, and you know, one one has gone off to college and become a doctor. And, you know, the other one is, is having a child for the first time. These are all milestones. But then it really focuses on the dark side of each one of those. Like, and it's, it's right. fine. People have these lives. And it's not to say that you can't be successful. And, and maybe it's it's saying that this movie really focuses on the interiority of, of a person's life, especially a, a young woman's life. Um, and it's like whatever success we see on the outside, there's still something going on within us that you need to pay attention to. I can see that still being something that is worth talking about. I just don't think it was done well. No, I, yeah, exactly. Well, that's why I'm saying bad, not ugly. Yeah. So no, no, right. no, agreed. Let's let's move on. Uh, you're bad. What do you what do you got? I think I, I think we I think our conversation basically covered that. I I don't think <laughs> I, I think that's exactly the thing I want to talk about. Was uh, I don't think there's there's much. I really like that the film felt like it was a summer. Like, I don't think, I think that there's, there's some pacing issues with this film a little bit, but the fact that we're covering such a large swath of time, um, the film is allowed to meander a little bit. Yeah. And I think if you took the, the bookend parts and added to the film, it would feel better paced. Yeah. So I, uh, once again, you know, what little bad I felt towards the main crux of the film is supported in the fact that I didn't like the bookends. And I think that's that's really all there is to say about that. Okay. The Ugly. What is the worst bits of this film, Drew? I mean, the, again, I, I, I like how The Ugly has essentially started to start discussing the meta-narrative of our uh, our filming. But The Ugly of this is clearly Roberta as a queer character. Uh, she yeah. absolutely, without fail, is written to be a queer character. And it's very clear that it was original part of the script that got changed in the, once again, the bookends of it. Yes. Um, the, the kind of addition of she's living with a boyfriend. And, you know, I've, I've read arguments where like, well, if she's a queer character, why did she kiss a boy? Uh, we all don't figure out our sexuality at the age of 13. You know, there's a lot of hit or misses. So I think the fact that the producers are uncomfortable with the fact that two best friends, one of whom is a gynecologist, is also a lesbian, and they have a both a friendship relationship and a doctor-patient relationship made the producers uncomfortable is ridiculous. And I think this is a much better film if it explores Roberta uh, yeah. in that way. And it doesn't have to be explicit. I know a lot of uh, queer women who found Roberta to be a role model for them and are very, have expressed how much they dislike the handling of this character in this film. Again, in the bookends. Another reason to dislike the bookends. Yeah. How about you? What's ugly for you, bud? I, that that, you know, that kind of—I mean, I could—I could bring up the the nudity that you warned us about in the uh, intermission as ugly, but I mean, it's not. It's it's just kind of awkward, but it it feels right to the story. I know. I think you you hit on the ugly part of this, which is yeah. changing changing it in the editing room was a mistake. They should yeah. have if that's if that's the script they signed up to do, and that's the script they filmed, which it is, then that should yeah. have been the script that ended up making it onto the screen. And uh, the the revision of that is. 
well, just like we said with the the rest of the bookends, it's sloppy. It's not it's not well done. And you know, if it were made today, they wouldn't have redone it. It is a a, a product of its time, as we have mentioned right. with other movies we've talked about. But it's still a shame. I mean, again, you're talking about product of its time, and I don't know if this necessarily counts as ugly, but you know. Uh, grown women smoking near a pregnant woman, a woman using Aquanet, which is clearly bad for babies. Um, there's a lot. Of, there's another ugly thing in here too, which is again we've we've commented on the whiteness of this yes. this movie, and that's fine. You can do a film about white suburbia and have no people of color. I get that. I think it's a, again a snapshot of a time period. That's not the problem. It gets problematic when you do have one person of color. He is a chauffeur. And um, in the again the bookend in the bookend uh, they yes. they push him out of the car so he can't do the job that he is qualified for so that Roberta can drive them to the hospital. I, I you know I get it from a comedy sitcom narrative perspective that that's a funny thing to do, but it's just like oof. What is, I, I don't. I think everything that I find wrong with this, I find in the bookends. Uh, and there we go. I, I continue to find ugly stuff with it. So there's that. No, I totally get it. All right. So Drew, <laughs> I hate this part of the show so much. Which kid were you? <laughs> I was Sam. I absolutely 100% was Sam. I actually, this is nice too because I think of the last time I was saying like, find the spaz. That's me. But Sam is a nerd in her own right. She's a sci-fi nerd. She's deeply troubled. She definitely internalizes her parents' divorce. She has issues about self-worth. I can relate to that character quite a bit. It's interesting, too. I also would have said, like, I was sort of like an artistic kid as well. And I think writing certainly is a form of right. I am. I'm a published author. I've written stuff. So, uh, yeah, I think I think Sam feels Sam feels like the a low energy version of me at 13 14 rather than some of our other aged groups like like the goonies where the kids are a little bit younger how about you right. um yeah <laughs> for a lot of the reasons you just mentioned i uh i was sam uh the internalizing parents divorce broody uh moody and i still am and you know that 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 was the one part of the bookends that I found meaningful is towards the end of the film, uh, talking about whether or not they're happy and Sam's revelation that she spent so much time trying to keep the, the bad out. She didn't let any of the good in. And I posted a much more verbose, uh, version of that statement on, on Facebook literally a month ago, uh, about my own kind of existence and such. And it was like, so I was Sam, and I still am, and um, that I felt a little targeted <laughs> by that. Uh, I think of all the movies we have done, that is the closest depiction of me on screen, probably until we do Stand By Me. Ah, <laughs> uh, well, uh, you know. That's that are kind of beautiful. These coming of age stories is we can identify, and I think it's it's. It speaks volumes that the character that we identify, we both sort of identify with. There is there is another character coming up in a in a future movie. I know we're going to be discussing that. I feel a kinship to as well. But I think it's both interesting that both you and I identify very heavily with a, a young female character too. Um, but again, it's also that the trope of characters that we are seeing are not characters that we normally see. like. You know, yes. 
um, Teenie is, I don't know if we would call her the pretty girl. And I don't know if we would call her a popular girl too, because we never see these teens interacting with other teams. Yeah. Yeah. It's just each other. And like they can, it's the people that they can be themselves around. So I think the, the tropes that we're seeing of these characters, like, I think like, okay, Sam's like, uh, you know, we would call her loner weirdo or the brilliant mathlete and Roberta's a jock and uh, teeny, maybe the popular girl, maybe the plastic beauty, uh, something along those lines. Again, using kids on bikes uh, tropes, but, 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 you know, bringing up and again, why I am Sam, because you just made the point. We don't see them interacting with other kids. These are the kids that they can be themselves with. But even in that group of friends, Sam is guarded. She doesn't yeah. share with them that her parents are splitting up. She doesn't. I mean, she does eventually. And at first, just with the one, as you said, the, the kind of the sub click within it. But that was me, even with my friends growing up. Like, I didn't reveal everything to them that was going on in my life and in my mind. And that, that again, that is why I'm Sam. <laughs> I mean, okay, let's talk a little bit of the psychology of Sam. So she's a character who grows up to do science fiction because she likes that kind of stuff as she's younger. But everything that she discusses is fictional and fantastic because she doesn't discuss the truth. She right. doesn't like talking about the truth. She doesn't reveal to her friends that Dear Johnny was um, Crazy Pete's kid. Right. Until 25 years later after the fact, which is insane. This is absolutely the thing. Oh, we spent the entire summer doing this. Oh, oh, by the way, did I ever mention that the thing that we spent their entire summer and the whole crux of our movie, that th- this is the connections? Why wouldn't you have explained that? But, and, and just because I have to do it at least once, and this will be the one, in Stand By Me, he sees the deer and he talks, the, the adult narrator says, I've never told anybody about that moment until now. And right. that, is that, that is that exact thing is this was something, this was her secret to hold on to. This yeah. was her, she now understood something better than the rest of her friends. And the rest of her friends were content with the knowledge that they had, but, but Sam needed to understand it on a deeper level. And once she did... She could keep that. She could hold on to that. And I can relate to that. I can understand that completely. Sure. All right. Enough about Sam. I think we could probably talk for another hour about how we relate to her, but but we've got other things to talk about. So let's go ahead and get into rating the movie. Uh, for those who are new to the show, we rate the movie on a double axis. We talk about, first of all, how good of a movie it is, and then we talk about how good it is specifically within the kids on bikes subgenre. So Drew, let's start by rating the movie on a scale of one to 10. Where does this fall for you? I, I think it's not going to be a surprise to anyone that I'm I'm going to deduct points from this film because of the bookend. I think this would be a better film just in general. I think for this one, I'm going to give it a seven. I think there's a lot going on in it. I think I would almost rate it lower because every time I think about how much I kind of dislike the bookends, uh, I want to drop it down. But I've also come into this thing where every time I think about how much I enjoy the Goonies or Attack the Block or Lost Boys, I always want to rate it higher because my nostalgia, I have no nostalgia for this. Right. Um, and I think a seven, I think had the potential to be a much better film. And I, and I don't want to drop it lower than that. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to drop it a little lower than that. Um, mm-hmm. that. That is your lowest rating on a movie to date. This is also going to be my lowest rating on a movie to date. Um, and, and, and I'm going to go with a six. I think the bookends, especially because of the way the movie was sold and has been, you know, 
perpetuated as like it's two storylines and it's not. And and so, you know, don't be deceitful in your marketing practices. I, you know, I, I think, as you said, the performances by the young actresses are all fantastic. And I think the story is good. But I, I can't connect with this movie on that same level, not having nostalgia and also, you know, as we've mentioned, not having been a teenage girl at any point. So I, I, I don't see it as brilliantly done as I would like to think. So I'm going to go with a six and I'm hoping... Because I did like this movie. I don't want you to think I didn't like your pick. I, sure, I sure, did sure. enjoy this movie. I do see myself revisiting it again, mm-hmm. but it's not a great movie. No, agreed. Agreed. I think I think there's um, a definitely a bones. Uh, and again, for those listening, this is us uh, without without nostalgia. I think right. if if we had if we didn't grow up with the Goonies, if we hadn't grown up with the Lost Boys, if we hadn't grown up with the well, I didn't grow up with Attack the Block. I wish I had. Neither that would I. have been absolutely <laughs> awesome. But I think a lot of uh, the films that we talk about are going to be colored by our nostalgia from watching it in our childhood, uh, and they're. I think it's kind of hard for us not to see something that we loved so much as kids. And I know other people are going to be like, "Why? How could you rate it so low?" It's fine. It's fine. That is that is that is what it is. And, and I'm going to say 30% on Rotten Tomatoes is really low for the critic side. So if you think about it, I'm still being kinder to this movie than the <laughs> critics are. <laughs> I would also like to point out that most of those critics are men. Fair. Very valid point. Very valid point. All right. Kids on Bikes movie on a scale of 1 to 10. How is this to you as a Kids on Bikes movie? I think this is actually a really excellent Kids on Bikes movie. But it also is a very different Kids on Bikes movie. It is. Um this might be the most kids on bikes emphasis on the bikes kids on bikes movie that we may <laughs> may discuss just for the sheer amount of time that is spent like really looking at how having a bike and having a group of friends allows you to move around a town yeah there's not like a supernatural threat or a, a pirate map but like this really captures a very different genre, and I think we can't ignore that. Now, I'm not going to give it as high of a rating as I probably could, but I just want you to, like, I want everyone to know that I think this, again, if it wasn't for the bookends, and because it is not an adventure film, I'm not going to give it as high of a rating, but I think, I think this is a 7.5 okay. for me on Kids on Bikes, because if I just think about that, it really does feel like it captures the spirit of a 1970s kids on bikes had this been the same story in the 1980s maybe it would have run a little higher uh because it's a time period i'm not as familiar with but again you're dealing with nostalgia there so yeah i'm gonna go seven seven five okay as i said at the beginning i think they spend literally almost a third of the movie on their bikes and i don't have a problem i did originally i got over it i don't have a problem with it not being an adventure as much yeah. uh, you know i like the fact that it's diving into a different genre and i've already made the statement that if you want to run a kids on bikes campaign this is necessary viewing so i can't give it a low score having said that statement so i'm going to go with a 9 for this as far as a kids on bikes movie i think if you are trying to create a kids on bikes game trying to create a kids on bikes world this and is way up there as far as required viewing to help set your atmosphere and your tone and and maybe even your expectations wow a 9 yeah just, i think just it's to that throw valuable. this out there to remind folks i'm i'm going to go over so goonies a 10 Right. Now and then, a nine, the Lost Boys a seven, and attack the block a six for the kids on bikes. That's it. That is, um, I'm not going to say that it is, it's, it's unexpected, but very pleasantly unexpected. I <laughs> really like that you liked 
this film as much as as you did. So that's cool. That's awesome, man. I'm really I'm excited about that. This makes me really happy. <laughs> All right, now it's time. Speaking of happy, for our kids on bikes draft. Uh, for regular listeners, know each month we draft a team member to our team from the movie that we've watched. We each of us gets a team of seven mundane kids and one peripheral adult. And uh, let's really quickly, Drew. Let's review our teams su- thus far. Uh, my team is made up of Mikey from The Goonies, Pest from Attack the Block, and Edgar Frog from The Lost Boys. Such a cool team. My team consists of Data from The Goonies, Moses from Attack the Block, and from The Lost Boys, I I chose the first peripheral adult uh, in Grandpa Emerson. So uh, this was your pick, which means I get to pick first. And uh, I I had my pick all figured out. I mean, it was pretty obvious. You know, we are both Sams, so my pick has to be Sam. You know, I have the heart of the group with Mikey, and I've got a little bit of ingenuity with Pest. Uh, Edgar Frog is my heavy, so I, I get my writer in there, that kind of thing. It would be a good fit. And then I changed my mind. I'm not going to pick Sam. I'm going to pick Roberta as the peripheral adult. Oh, my God. <laughs> she is a doctor. She is the type of adult that would put up with the kids going on this kind of adventure, whatever kind of adventure it is that we have them going on. She would be supportive of that, but also concerned about them. And I I mean, I just, I, as, as much as I am not a Rosie O'Donnell fan, just in general, uh, I think that's my pick for the team is that Roberta is my peripheral adult. Wow. That came out of nowhere. (laughs) Um, like I kind of almost want to call foul on that because uh, but no, I mean, I, I can't. Clearly, I can't. But what a what an interesting choice. I really like the idea that that your group eventually runs into Roberta in in Shelby, Ohio or Shelby, Indiana. And uh, OK, OK. Wow. Well, let me ask you this, then. Could I also choose Roberta at the kid? Then if you chose adult Roberta, because <laughs> You know, I I guess you can. I, I guess because that's different characters. I mean, it's the same character, but uh, yeah, I think you can. I don't know if I want to. Actually, so I, I came into this thinking I'm definitely choosing Roberta. I really like the idea of – I don't love the female tomboy character. Um, I do know that that's um, – it's not a necessarily helpful trope, but I also know a lot of people who identify as tomboys. I also like the idea of some queerness on my team. Um, but there's also something interesting about Sam as the character who is interested not just in science fiction, but in the supernatural. She's yeah. the character that really uh, puts emphasis on the seance. Like she's the one who – I don't think anyone else is really interested in, in the seance per se, but Sam – and I do like the idea that there's someone on my team who, when things get spooky, she would be the one to to go to. Yeah. Uh, oh, my goodness. The idea of turning down Christina Ricci on a team is a bit much. No, I'm going to go with Sam, I think. I think I'm going to go with Sam. I think that's a really – I think she makes a very interesting mix, even though having another uh, kind of – a complicated bruiser on my team is interesting. Um, I think I'm going to go with um, Sam Jr. Uh, as my my pick for this one. Okay, fantastic. 
All right. That's well, that takes <laughs> that takes us out of the movie section of this. We're going to take a quick break, and when we're back, uh, we will start talking about the gamification of Now and Then. Hi, everyone. I'm Shell Morgan. And I'm Lisa Magistrelli. And we're the hosts of Whose Crime Is It Anyway? We are two Canadian girls who cover true crime that happens in the true north. You may think Canada is a pleasant little country full of maple syrup, snowy weather, and people who say sorry all the time. But it's much more sinister than that. There's murder, serial killers, missing persons, mysterious deaths, bank robberies and heists, and we cover them all. Province to province, coast to coast, and all throughout history, there's crime being committed across Canada. We ask the questions you want to ask, we theorize on what really happened, and we try to find out the truth behind every single case. If you're like us, you'll always be wondering, whose crime is it anyway? Join us wherever you listen to podcasts. Bye! Toodles! Welcome back. Uh, we are now going to discuss how we can gamify a film so that anyone can play an RPG session inspired by the movie regardless of the system that they are using. So uh, now and then, as we've already noted, is is a bit different from our traditional sort of linear adventure RPG sessions. Um, this is not one that I would suggest playing a one-shot of. But before we even get to the adventure, the mystery, the quest, we need to have a discussion about the discussion you and your players are going to have during your session zero. What discussions you need to have with players before you begin playing. And this is usually going to include things like what Johnny want to play in, the rating system, as well as what you won't be including in the game now and then deals with some pretty dark topics. Um, yeah. It is. It's a coming of age genre story and it's pretty heavy. And I know that there are players who would relish a drama-heavy look at the interiority of young, coming-of-age women. And if that's the kind of game you want to play, certainly the truths that we are going to discuss are going to help you with that. But for folks who are just trying to capture the outward spirit of it, let's talk a little bit about what we sort of need to look at. Sure. So if you and your players don't want to be quite so heavy, I think just before you start playing, just have a nice discussion uh, this is this is for player safety too. About the things you don't want to talk about, you know, if you don't want to talk about divorce, you can skip it. Even though it is a it's a pretty big part of of what the story goes into. I mean, there are there are some topics that this story could have clearly gone into as well that I'm very glad that it didn't. So let's talk a little bit about. Um, we talked about the genre. It's definitely a coming of age story. I think we we can agree with that. It's a coming of age story that has that's also a period piece. Uh, and that is also a mystery, right? Yes. Like that's, that's, there's three different genres mixed into that, but they also go together so well that I don't feel like, you know, that's going to complicate anything. Those three go real hand in hand. Period piece, coming of age, mystery, sign me <laughs> up. 
<laughs> you mean kind of like the, uh, the the game that you ran that we were both a part of? <laughs> Listen, the game we ran was a period piece supernatural science fiction story. Mystery. Mystery. Yeah. <laughs> With some very weird stuff, and I miss it every single day. Now, in 1995, let's see, this film was rated, what was it rated? Uh, PG-13. PG-13. Yeah. And normally when we have a discussion about sort of ratings, a PG-13 movie would be that your players could get hurt. There is some risk for your players, physical risk. In a PG-13 movie, characters can die. Frequently the characters, like side characters will die off screen. Your characters could actually sustain some physical damage. One step down from an R where your characters, no character is safe, right? That's usually reserved for like horror films. Uh, When we are definitely going to be talking about R-rated games um, sometime in the near future, I'm sure. Um, but yeah, there's, there's the, your players could potentially get damaged now in now and then that damage is emotional. Um, right. <laughs> even though there, there is some scrappiness, there's some fights, but, uh, yeah, I think when looking at that with the players, just ask them where you kind of want to fall into the spectrum. Cause I think you can play a now and then game that is G or PG rated, um, without really dealing with some of those more emotional issues. You can play the PG-13 version of this, very similar to what we see on the screen. You could also potentially do this as an R-rated because there is a very dark undertone mystery that, that could be involved in it where you could, if the mystery they're trying to solve has repercussions, if someone's trying to seriously protect it, you could run this as a as an R-rated. But I think to Absolutely. get the real spirit of the film, it, it is... PG-13, there's some risk for your characters, but not death. I think yeah. I think that's probably safe to say. Also with the Session Zero, I think, and we, we haven't really emphasized this in a game before, I think setting up a map of the town would really benefit, even though I'd say one act of this film takes place at a nine-mile bike ride to go to a, the neighboring town, uh, I think having a map of the town might help because if you were looking at this as a campaign that's taking place over three months, right, for the summer, could you imagine this this film if it wasn't during the summer, if we actually saw them in the school year? That's a very, very different story. But having an idea of where you're going and where um, the Gaslight Edition is compared to the graveyard, compared to the main downtown, compared to some of the more rural areas that we do see playing throughout wouldn't hurt. Again, is it necessary? Absolutely not. Might it be helpful? That depends on you and your players discussing whether or not they need something like that. Um, I personally, for the gamification of a film like this, I would create a map just to yeah. help. Because there's a there's a quest narrative that that is involved in this that I, I think works. And it's not the first time we've recommended that. We did recommend that with Goonies as well, if I remember correctly. And if we didn't, we should have, so we'll pretend we'll retcon that now, that we did recommend it during Goonies. <laughs> we definitely mentioned that Goonies would be an excellent time to create a prop map that had clues on it for mysteries, which is a little different. So I think that it was the map was really emphasizing the clues that were hidden within rather than the map of the town because we weren't really emphasizing Astoria as much as we were. I think we also talked about potentially using a map for Santa Carla uh, and the idea that the Frog Brothers could take that past Santa Carla to go and fight other nests. But this is really a very specific small town. This is something that worked really well with the Kids on Bikes RPG specifically. But again, I think you could do it with with any any system. Okay. All right. Well, that gets us into what I think is probably the most important part of our RPG discussion, which is analyzing the 
truths that would be at the core of any game inspired by, and again, emphasizing, we're, we're talking about an inspired by game, not a direct running, this is now and then, but but the inspiration. So the truths that we need to get into when we're considering how to build that game. Uh, give me your first one, Drew. Well, I've alluded to this a couple of times. I think the main thing to look at for now and then to capture the spirit of it is that this is a campaign. It is going to take multiple sessions and the game itself is going to take place over a summer. So you have to accept that three months worth of time is going to pass. And there are certain quests and adventures and mysteries that are going to take place during that. And there are maybe even just rather than calling them quests, but goals that need to, there needs to be a goal in which something needs to be accomplished by the end of summer. Now in now and then it is accumulating enough money to buy the treehouse, which is like $129 in 1970, which is worth every single penny considering that treehouse is immaculate in the backyard 25 years later. <laughs> like they just don't build them like they used to. But yeah, the idea that as players, there is a mundane goal that you're going to have that is sort of what you're planning your summer is going to be, but that doesn't get thrown by the wayside, but it's sort of like it starts off as plot A and then it becomes plot B and actually then becomes plot C by the end of it, I think it is important. Yeah, I, I will say that was one disappointment I had about the movie is that that is just absolutely thrown by the wayside. Uh, and then, oh, we got enough money, so we got the treehouse. Because, I mean, we obviously knew they got the treehouse because they, they show it in the bookend at the beginning. But right. And it did. It became plot A, and then plot B, and then plot C, and then it became really an afterthought. I know there was a deleted scene where they were holding a carnival to help raise money. I would have liked for that to have been in just to show us that that still was a priority for the characters, but it wasn't. But I'm getting back into movie talk, and that's not what we're supposed to be doing. <laughs> well, what's another truth that you think that goes along with that? I know that, that the campaign idea is really kind of an overarching theme, but there are definitely more specific troops that, uh, truths that we should be talking about. Yeah. I, I think the big one at the heart of it is that there is a secret. There is some terrible secret uh, that the characters are then set out to uncover. And this is not just a mundane secret. This is something that the town as an entity is aware of. It is something that they have – everyone in the town who has been around long enough – has worked to cover up, to forget, to leave in the past. And now you have this new generation that is uncovering the secret and wants to know more. And the people in the town don't want to acknowledge it or don't want to cooperate. So th that becomes kind of the guiding focus. That becomes the A plot when the, the, the main, the mundane goal gets dropped down. And that's the quest that the players are on. They are collecting information to uncover what happens. That's the mystery. I also really like that the movie throws in an obstacle in because they make that nine-mile trek. Now, that that is an obstacle right there. They leave town, which we've said doesn't really happen in these movies. Uh, but the reason that they have to leave town is because something happened in the town to make it tougher to collect that information. And in this case, it is that there's a fire and every record from before 1945 has been destroyed. So they have to go to the adjacent town. I just, I like that idea that the obstacles aren't just people don't want to talk about it, but there's something else in there, whether it's a fire or, or, or such that has, has made, makes the quest more difficult. Yeah. Um, I think the, the way we're describing it from a, a narrative standpoint, or at least a gamification standpoint, it, it sounds a little bit more sinister than it's actually shown in the movie. But I think if you look at the mystery, which is, of course, what happened to Dear Johnny, 
this is a horrific murder that takes place that no one talks about because the underlying goal for your parents, your character's parents, is they believe that this town is safe, the Gaslight Edition is safe, and they don't want to tell you that information. It's something interesting that we get from the story perspective is no parent offers any useful information to our kids, like for their quest. I would extend that because we even have a grandparent who then right. flat, flat out refuses to give information. Yeah. Under the auspices of you don't need to worry your little heads about this right. sort of a thing. And because death is sort of the underlying theme of this movie, dealing especially with Roberta and the obsession sort of with seances and the obsession with Yerjani, it's it's such an interesting thing. Like they don't want to discuss this. So you have to go out of town to, to learn that information. So yeah, um, I think that one's really important. Um, on a, a slightly lighter note, um, <laughs> I think there needs to be a rival gang. You know, it doesn't have to be the same number of players. We don't have to be looking at gender disparity here. Um, but the Wormers are really interesting characters that can be, if you're playing in an R-rated game, you can make the menace R-rated menace. But this is a PG, PG-13 movie where the rivalry gang is sort of like that weird, stupid trope of, of oh, they're just being jerks because they like you, which is terrible and horrible. Right. But also, three quarters of that group are jerks because they're just jerky boys. But like, I really like the idea that there's another kids on bike group that you potentially... Just, I'm just throwing this out there. You potentially could do now and then from the warmer side and just see what their summer was like. And I think it would be a really interesting setup. I mean, like they could have done a, not a sequel. What is it called? Just a parallel tale, you know, right. in the same way that we have Ender's Game versus the, the parallel tale with Bean or something, Petra right. or something along those lines. Um, but I like the idea of the gang. Is it necessary? No, but I think from a truth aspect of it, it really builds a main focus for a lot of those characters that you need to have an antagonist that is outside of your own tortured uh, psyches. So that I think would be pretty important. No, I agree. I agree. I, I, and I loved that aspect in this movie of that rival gang. And yeah, the whole they're mean to you because they like you is not a no, good thing. We need to no. we need to get rid of that. But uh, I, I just liked the fact that they had this antagonistic relationship with the other kids on bikes group. Mm-hmm. So Yeah. All right. Also in this movie, uh, in the way it plays out in the movie is the seance, which you've re- referred to repeatedly. Mm-hmm. The the characters, the players are responsible, or they think they're responsible for something. And then, like the way, the reason the girls get so engaged in this story is they think that they have summoned dear Johnny's spirit, and that they need to solve this in order to have him back at peace. So they believe they are responsible for this event, or they believe that the supernatural explanation exists, and they are connected to it. In the movie, it is the illusion of a supernatural event that that lasts up until the film's final act, which is really well done. But if we're gamifying this, there's no reason why it couldn't actually be a supernatural event if that's the direction you and your players discuss in the zero session that you want to go like it could be the illusion of it or it could be reality that it is actually supernatural and i think there's a lot of room for variety in that but i think that is also one of the inherent truths of this type of story yeah agreed i really like the idea of the player's 
causing a supernatural event. If you are playing something like Kids on Bikes and you are playing with powered characters, uh, making Dear Johnny a powered character would be interesting. And if you still really wanted to capture the spirit, there's no reason that Dear Johnny as a supernatural being couldn't, rather than being something that is used for combat, maybe it's something that is pushing the players to uncover the mystery and so would have a way to actively signal clues for the characters in the same way that we were complaining about that happening in the Goonies where the GM, the invisible hand of the GM is kind of like knocking down walls. You could make dear Johnny blow out certain lights or draw attention to certain newspaper articles. Like if you go to the, the library out of town and they can't, they're looking through the stacks and they're looking through the stacks and can't find something. But then suddenly one of the books falls in their laps. Something along those lines would be a fun way of playing that without straying too far from what is essentially the the, the narrative and the kind of the spirit in quotes. Um, actually, <laughs> we're talking about spirit too. There is a movie that has Devin Sawa from from this this film and yes, Christina there Ricci. Is. There is, <laughs> and I love that movie so much. I've never seen it. I've never watched Casper. It's definitely one that I'll I'll have to watch. It's it's so funny how this is spun up. But I digress. All right, let's see what else we've sort of discussed that the the, the parents want to keep up the illusion of the safe town. Um, we we haven't really discussed sort of the supporting players of this. I I think PCs need to meet NPCs that help set them up. So from a gamification standpoint. We have Willa Dean, the waitress, who played by Janine Garofalo, who I'm not going to say it was Janine Garofalo's best work, but I really like the idea that the players pay for a tarot reading. But what the film doesn't really get at is she gives a tarot reading. We see the death. We see the, was it Nine of Swords? But it doesn't explain, they look at it from face value. Right. It doesn't give an interpretation. Yeah. The interpretation, of course, is change and looking within. And I think like there's a deeper meaning to that that's not explained. So from a gamification standpoint, what I would do is you don't have to play tarot if that's not your thing. But if you did some sort of secondary game that helped to give you the player's clues or set you on the right path or to create another side quest, uh, I think that would work out really well. But I also like the idea that your characters are accumulating knowledge that's going to help them solve these mysteries by their NPCs. So we run into Brendan Fraser's hippie vet who gives us one of those very important facts. Your parents aren't always right, but he could also very easily set them on a path right. to look in the right direction as opposed to giving them cigarettes uh, which, you know, two of the four become addicted to later in life. Um, <laughs> I think the NPCs, you can really give a chance to have some very colorful NPCs that um, could be act either red herrings or help you uh, try to solve quests. And I think that works out really well and would go along very well with the kind of the feeling that we're going for here. Well, I, but I think you're overlooking that this is an element that, that makes now and then so different from all the other kids on bikes things, which is the parents are far more actively involved in the kids' lives as a presence. Now, they aren't manipulating things. They aren't taking away the kids' agency, but they are there, which in the Goonies, we see the mom. But otherwise, I mean, for the most part, the parents are not an active part of the story as far as like creating part of the story. And in this case, you do have a lot of parental issues. As you said, that's something you discuss in the zero session if you want to have, but it gives you the opportunity to build relationships between these characters who are kids 
and their parents. And that's not something we've seen before. That set, that really sets this apart from everything else we've discussed. And, and maybe it's not a direction that you want to go because we did say in our zero session that that typically isn't part of a kids on bike story, but I think it opens the door for some really interesting interactions and drama and role playing that we haven't seen in any of the other movies we've discussed. And I don't, I don't think that, I think that needs to be paid attention to. Yeah, it's interesting too. We see the, we see everyone's parents right off the get-go. Actually, we don't see Roberta's father, but we have the idea of Roberta's mother, who is someone who has passed away. We she carries around this photo with her. But like Chrissy's mom has that gardening analogy, which oh is God. terrible. Uh, and then we we get to see Sam's parents essentially have a divorce. The father really isn't in the picture. We just get to see him leave. We sort of see Teeny's parents. Though it doesn't necessarily show us which one of that, what it essentially feels like a swingers party. Yes. Um, we don't know which one is which. And once we're introduced to them, with the exception of Sam's mother, who shows up in a couple of really interesting scenes, we don't see those adults again for the rest of it. Their presence is there, like you said, but we don't actually see them. And it does, again, remind me of how I ran my game, which is where one of our characters had a, a set of parents that they engaged with, but no one else could write a scene in which their parents were involved. Everyone had to avoid them, a la Charlie Brown. Like So the idea behind it was the parents affected the characters, but we never had a scene with them because I didn't want to focus on the the parents. I always wanted to focus on the kids. So, yeah. You could, if you wanted to, um, decide what your parents, like, what your home life was like beforehand. Again, it's a zero session thing, you know, make sure you're avoiding traumas that uh, you don't want to discuss, but it certainly would make it interesting. Yeah. All right. The last truth that I have for this, and it, it's almost not important depending on how you want to run your, your game, but it is that pacts made between the characters are sacred. That if they commit to the group about something, if they make a pact, then they will be held to that. And that it needs to be inherent in their characters that that promise is essential. That it, it you know, that if they, if they have a choice to make in the game and a pact that they have made with the other players is uh, part of that, that they're going to have to lean that direction as far as their choice goes. I think that if you decide to include something like this, I think the important way is to figure out a way to manifest that in a gamification. So yeah. you can have a physical reminder of it. For instance, if if two characters have a pact with one another, give them a friendship bracelet to do that. And while the friendship bracelet is in play, maybe that pact gives you an in-game bonus. Or until you complete that pact, there is an in-game some sort of in-game modifier, both positive and negative, I think would be really interesting because you are playing this like a campaign and you're already devoting multiple sessions to it. And I, I don't think you can have multiple packs per one character. Uh, I agree with A set that. of characters. So, yeah. you know, like if, if you're doing with four characters, the most you can have in-game is four packs. I think that would be really fun. Uh, and I think it would definitely create uh, bonds between characters that would be very satisfying to play through. Yeah, and I, and I think that's a lot of what we're discussing here with the truths adds to something you said very early on in this recording, which is this is going to be role-playing. You know, it is not action. It is not going to be a, a, a ton of adventure, but it, it is going to be 
an inspired campaign that leads to a lot of role playing, a lot of dramatic scenes, and stuff like pacts or those that parental trauma, and that, that that helps inform how your players go about communicating their characters. And I think that that really opens the door for some some brilliant acting and and brilliant moments between the characters if they choose to take advantage of it. Now, a lot of that is out of your hands as the game master, but you can set the stage with it for them to to use or don't use as they see fit. Yeah. Absolutely. Speaking of setting the stage, Drew. Yes. Set pieces. We always talk a little bit about the set pieces we need for an adventure inspired by this. Uh, What do you got for this one? Well, clearly we've talked about the suburbs. I love the idea of that. So if you're putting that, like that's got to be first and foremost on the map. I think if the one thing you cannot avoid is a suburb because that's the important part of this one. Right. And I, I think the graveyard also feels just absolutely essential because it's very difficult to find an analog to a graveyard. Like what else would you do if you did take place in a graveyard? Um, so yeah, I think those are two that I would like top of my list. What else? What else would you include? Well, they do have the the obstacle that makes them have to leave town. I like the right. idea of that. That could be a nice little adventure, uh, one or two sessions of them having to to leave town, and the and the consequences that could come with that if they get caught. There's going to be a ticking clock as to how long they could be away. Um, so I think you've got to have a second a location out of town to get to. In this case, it is an adjacent town, uh, and I, I think of the game that you ran where you started bringing us into an adjacent town, uh, and and the trials and tribulations that that causes too. Like you know. This is during summer, so there's probably not school rivalries going on, but there could be. You know, I mean, there, right. there could be a lot of fun with that as well. So I think that's an important place. Um, I think one of the other places, too, um, because there's that scene where the grandmother is clearly trying to actively hide something from the players or from the characters in the movie, uh, and they have to break into the grandmother's attic to look for information, which reveals a lot. I think exploring some place that is already familiar to the characters, but learning something new about it, that's a really important one. It doesn't have to be a grandmother's attic. It can be something involving the family. It could be any place that you feel like one of the characters is familiar with um, in a way to kind of subvert that familiarity and either make it sinister or um, just show that it's um, the safety aspect of his facade, I think would be really, really important to it. That was another nitpick I had with the movie is this is 1970 in the suburbs. Grandma didn't lock her door. They did not need to break into the (laughs) attic that way. (laughs) They just had to wait for her to drive out of sight and then go back in the house. (laughs) Or they would have the key to it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, But I do like a little bit of B&E in my adventures because that part actually felt like – because most of what is happening with our characters is the accumulation of knowledge rather than um, acting – in, in a form of um, proactive action. Um, it actually reminds me of a quote that um, I was talking with my friend uh, Maura about this film, and she said that the quest for knowledge as a woman never ends, and it is all of us asking questions and passing on what we know. And I really like that idea because so much of the the movie is based on conversations and overcoming, like, like grandma's a gatekeeper of knowledge. Um, right. The parents are gatekeepers of knowledge, and it's about passing. Like, it just someone had just told them. Sure, we wouldn't have a movie, but at the same time, like, it's it's about finding that knowledge and and moving forward. So so much is I don't want to say not proactive because they are searching for knowledge versus a an uh, a boy adventure film where they would be <laughs> breaking into places and firing their slingshots at stuff and you know like running away from junkyards and. 
you know, there's a there's a different energy to that one. Um, the other thing too is we kind of mentioned the 1970s and not locking doors. Whatever timepiece you don't have to set this in the 70s. This is easily could be the 80s. It could be the 90s. It could be the 2000s. You know, you with these truths, I think you can do it. But be aware of the time setting and just create things that would have been popular at that time. And one of the examples that we have in this game is, and this is not the only movie that we'll probably discuss that has this, where someone can sit on their roof and watch the um, the drive-in movie from like, I you know, it's it. always, yeah, I do too. You know, it's like they can't maybe hear it, but they can see it. And so like whatever's on the drive-in, they have these these visuals. And that really, like that's, that's such a 60s, 70s, early 80s sort of thing really kind of nice little uh set piece that kind of tells us what what time period we're using all right uh before we get into what rpgs you would use this for i have a couple of questions that dawned on me while i was watching this that i want to see uh how would you handle this or would you even handle this but things that came from the actual movie sure just picking your brain you know on the air like we do oh i'm I'm excited so we came up with our truths we come up with our locations and even though it's the part of the movie we didn't like, we haven't discussed the bookends at all. Would you consider having the players have adult versions of their characters who are flashing back to this and, and maybe establishing some of their personality and some of their, their characterization that way? Yeah, so I think I think this is definitely an optional part of this, but I think that's a really interesting idea. Now, I know f- from reading that the adult actresses based their performances on the children actresses' performances. They say they did that. I don't know if, if necessarily they did or not. Um, Rosie O'Donnell is Rosie O'Donnell. Let's just Rosie be Rosie O'Donnell honest, is Rosie O'Donnell. It's true. <laughs> um, and actually, something that's really telling is if you look at the promotional posters, everybody is hugging their younger selves, except for Rosie O'Donnell, who just kind of basically has her hand on Christina right. Ricci's shoulder. And it's just kind of like, that is such a flex. Anyway. Yes, I think this could be really, really cool that I think, again, I would definitely have my players create their kids first right? and understand. But the idea of a narrative flashing back, I think we could use the mechanic that's very popular in games like the Leverage RPG or Blades in the Dark where you use a flashback mechanic. I would maybe give one or two flashback tokens to a player in that the idea is we are playing a game, but this game is a story that we're telling. Now, if you decide you want to do that, you have to agree early on that no physical permanent, there's no going to be no character deaths in this game, right? Right. Unless, oh, wait, unless, Rafe, unless, and this, is, this goes against the game per se, but unless the adults are having a seance to discuss that time period with one of their friends who did pass away, during the summer of 1970, um, and one of the characters is a ghost. That's a very different story, but it is possible <laughs> to to do that. So I would use a flashback token so that if someone gets into trouble, you could say, well, that's not how I remember it, or so-and-so, and allow us to break in a way to describe our adult friends sitting around meeting each other after 20 years and tell, retelling that story. And someone's like, no, but yeah, but that's not how I remember it happening. We fudged a role. Our character's going to do something bad. Someone plays their flashback token, says, I don't remember that happening. And then they describe Rashomon style, their their narrative. And that way it allows the role to be ignored and a new player will can attempt that scene. I think that might work really well. I know I it, love that idea. I know it's not necessarily the same uh, because leverage and blades in the dark work off of a heist mechanic where like right. the idea is that you've uh, 
uh, appeared so many steps ahead, but I do like a good flashback narrative because it does address that we are telling a story. And again, I'm doing the thing that I don't want to, not going to do much of, and I'm very proud of us for not doing it as much. But when we talk about Stand By Me, there's a lot of allegory stories that are being told in within the context of the film right. that sort of shine lights onto what's happening to the inner lives of our characters during that film. It's completely different in this one because the the gimmick is they're telling it from a past perspective, which I know is sort of what um, Richard Dreyfuss' character is right. is doing, but in, in a very different way. But if you want to include those bookends, then I think that's that's the way they do it. It's the, it's the assumption that you have succeeded in your goal. This is us telling how we did it. And flashback allows you to take a failure or take a scene and almost steal it and retell it if it's not working the way you want or if it's failed. So I think that would that would work. And it's a nice gamification aspect of it. And it does kind of give a nod to how the, the original intention of the film. Right. So yeah, good question. And I think if you do that, that's where the, the pacts are sacred. Truth comes into play. Oh, that's cool. So let me ask you this then. Would you do the packs are sacred before the game starts in the same way? So at one point in time, I played a game where it's like, look, before we begin, I want everyone to decide how your character dies. And then we played the game to get our characters to those deaths. Um, mm-hmm. Would we choose our packs ahead of time as goals, storytelling goals, or would you change the way the game is playing based off of choosing packs in the middle of the game? I think I would do it the second way and let yeah. the, that way the packs come about more organically than okay. preconceived. But I, I, I could see the other way working as well. Cool. Yeah, no, I, I do too. I like that. All right. Number two, and, and I'm just really curious as to how you handle this because I haven't had to deal with this as a GM in a very long time. One of the storylines that is going on in this movie is a romance storyline. Mm-hmm. How, how do you handle romance storylines? Okay, so the first thing and the important thing is because we know we are playing in the coming-of-age genre, that is a trope in coming-of-age stories, you have to get your players permission before the game starts that they want to have a a romance storyline. So if there's four of us playing, or you know, four characters plus the GM, and three of them say, I have no interest in, in playing, I will, I'm only interested in platonic friendships, but one is like, I would be interested in romance, cool. If you want to do that and it comes up naturally, that's fine. But don't force, don't ever force romance on a player, especially when we are talking about children. Um, Now, admittedly, when you're coming of age, this is a puberty tale. These characters are going through that experience. They are interested in this to an extent in varying degrees. Clearly, um, you know, Teeny seems to be the character who's really interested in. But, you know, Teeny, we might find with Teeny a situation from... Something like American Beauty, uh, where the character who says they are interested, in fact, are not. There's so many problems with American Beauty. I can't believe it won the Academy Award for Best Picture. Um, <laughs> looking back on that, especially it, with the, the specter of what's-his-face, uh, it's such a creepy film. Anyway, yeah, the, the important part is, how would I handle it? I would ask first. Um, okay. I would want to see if my players wanted that. And if they were interested in it... Um, I would definitely make sure that we use the X card. If players right. haven't, haven't explored the X card is if the scene is getting to a point where you're not comfortable with it, you can tap the X card. Just casually letting us know that we back off and we take the scene from a different point. Maybe we like make it less intense. You know, just check the, right. check the room as it goes. Because I think it's interesting about that romance scene. And I can't believe I'm saying this. 
it's almost a perfect example of consent. It is. Which seems mind-boggling for 1995 because every step of the way Devin Seva's character asks permission to take the next step. And that's weird. Well, and she, at the end, she says, you know, if you tell anybody about this, I'll beat the out of you. Yeah. And, uh, and the next time we saw them, I assumed that there would be like snickering or something like that. But no, he actually held true to that. He doesn't yes. tell the others. And it's like, he wow, that's others, actually yeah. really well handled in this movie. I just was curious as to how you would handle it in a game. Yeah. I mean, again, that's that's between me and the players. And, uh, you know, it's weird to say how I would handle it without seeing how my players react to certain situations. But the, the, the main thing is just gauge your interest really early on. Never force romance on anybody. Besides, romance is such an odd example. And I can think of very few times where I've really enjoyed PC NPC romance. Um, PC PC romance is a very different thing because you are dealing with two people who are have to be consensual about it as well. Especially when I'm playing with say married couples or couples who are dating, almost never do they want to engage in a both a real world and in play romance. Um, it's usually more fun of to do separate romances with other characters just to taunt the real life partners. That I've encountered a lot more often in the 35 years that I've been doing this. But it also, again, usually in D&D, and it usually degenerates into something awful. But for something like this, I think I think okay. we're probably good. All right, last one. And I cannot believe that you didn't bring this up before. So I'm really excited. But one of the things we see in the girls' relationship throughout the, the movie is that when they have downtime, when they're just hanging out casually, truth or dare. Yes. How would you integrate that? Because I've got some ideas on it. I want to hear your brain. All right. So in my notes uh, for gamification, I have truth or dare. Now, the important part in this is I think truth or dare can be used throughout the game. In the movie, they always choose truth. Truth, right. But you can use truth or dare as a mechanic for now and then to activate uh, sort of as a catalyst for proactive action sequences so you could dare them to do something to get them to do like it's like well i don't want to break into grandma's attic truth or dare dare i dare you to break into grandma's attic so i think you could use that mechanic to inform how certain encounters could be played but from a mechanics perspective truth or dare would act like the intuitive strength in uh, kids on bikes in that you would be able to by answering a question, I would almost ask the GM to ask the question rather than the player. And the answer would be something that would inform the players where to go next. So truth or dare might be where like, okay, you have some downtime. Why don't you play a game of truth or dare? And by doing so, that would help if, if the, maybe the action stagnated and I would use it to rather than maybe having me ask the players change this. Truth or dare, they get to ask the GM a question, and I will answer truthfully, as long as it's understood. This is, That's what intuitive in Kids on Bikes does, is right. you can ask the GM a question, the GM will answer, but you can be vague about it. You don't, you know, it's like, how do we solve this, um, this campaign? No one's going to ask that, because the point of the game is not beating the game, it's playing the game. But it could be like, where do we sense Dear Johnny the strongest? And I'm like, well, the last time you're traveling in your bikes... You felt it in this neck of the neighborhood, on this part of the map, point to the map. Or it could be truth or dare. Who in the neighborhood might know something about this crime? 
Well, you're figuring out that maybe none of the parents are, so you're going to have to go one generation further. So it might be that players get stuck, play truth or dare, I as the GM will play truth or dare. If they say dare, they're telling me that they want to be given an action that would force their hand or not. It's not railroading, right? Because they make the decision to play truth or dare. I love this. Actually, my notes are slightly different, but I do like the idea directly asking the GM truth or dare. And then those responses point them in the right way, not railroading, but kind of giving them that nudge that they need. That's exactly how I would do it. In fact, makes me that specifically, because I'm so glad you mentioned it because I didn't write it down on my show notes, but I wrote it down in my other ones. What else am I missing here? Well, and and see, I was thinking of it more as a character developmental point that, mm-hmm. you know, they have the downtime and they could be asking each other truth or dare. And again, because the movie, they always choose truth. Then it's a chance for the characters to kind of explore aspects of their character that might not have come up in the story so far, but then might give me as the GM information to to maybe tailor the story a little bit more to, oh, this character has this going on. I didn't realize that. It hasn't come up yet, but they've, they've thought about this. It's kind of like having the characters do their backstory, which we always do, uh, but, but getting to modify it on the run. And, and I would put the stipulation in that Again, let's use your example, four players at the table in the GM, they they get four cards. They can only ask truth or dare to one character one time before they have to kind of recycle. They have to they can't just always ask the same person truth or dare, truth or dare, you know. They they have to swap it up. I like that. And I think what we have two very good examples. I'm gonna add a third, um, which is a spin-off of what you said. I would maybe include truth or dare in the character process when you start looking at your other players choose truth or dare in the character creation to help establish the relationship. Truth is a a social, mental aspect bond between the two of them. Dare is something they did that Mm. um, held some significance. And I think that would be a really fascinating way of, one, it feels like kids, like a thing that kids would do. Like if we were creating, if we were playing kids on bikes, specifically that game, and we were playing adult characters, you wouldn't do that, right? Like I would completely skip that. But clearly, if you're playing kid characters or even teen characters, even more so teen characters, but but truth or dare has a different connotation with teens. I think that would be a really interesting way of adding flavor to the in-game mechanic. So I think right. all three of those options are really solid for creating the the the, the vibe or the spirit of. Uh, of the game. I love yeah. that. Good questions, man. <laughs> All right. Let's uh, let's finish this up. Uh, what RPGs would you use uh, for a now and then inspired game? Yeah. Um, I mean, clearly Kids on Bikes works perfectly for this. Kids on Bikes, the RPG, uh, you know, the Renegade and Hunters, is not a game in which you do a lot of, especially as kids, uh, combat, right? Like it's avoidance. Right. So this is... Solving a mystery, there's tons of ways of doing this. Evil Hat has Bubble Gumshoe, which is based off of the gumshoe mechanic, which is right. solving a mysteries. This is your junior detective sort of a thing. That's perfect. I think you could play a version of this with Fiasco, but Fiasco is designed to be a 90-minute movie. Um, there's a storytelling part of it. I think because combat isn't a major part of it, something along the lines of Wander Home could also work. 
I feel like I'm going back to these certain wells, but it's because well, but we are. When we're working in the same genre, we're going to have yeah. that happen. So I don't think yeah. it's a bad thing. I mean, you could do this for D&D. One of the things that I've really appreciated with a couple of the modules, and I, there's going to be some D&D players who are going to hate this. I love the fact that non-combat resolution is a thing. And the idea that you are playing characters who are not allowed to take combat roles. You know, like Sam's a bard because they're, it's all about telling stories. Teeny's a bard <laughs> because it's all about sort of acting and and that relationship. Even though Roberta does get into fights, you would be dealing with non-lethal damage. You know, like that sort of a thing. You could play D&D. I don't think it works as well. I think really of all the movies that we've looked at, this is the film that Kids on Bikes, the RPG, best supports yeah. to follow along there. And when I first proposed this, that was a big thing is I got to find a game in which we have to be thinking outside of the box, you know, a real storytelling game, a real narrative game in which where dice doesn't get, no, but it works fine. I think both Bubblegum Shoe and uh, Kids on Bikes are perfect games for this. If you're listening to this and you're already a fan of both of those systems, it's real easy to, to jump into that. Yeah. I think those would work great. Well, and I'm going to throw one in just because it's our repeating gag here. Um, you know, I said that there is the idea of a supernatural threat. You could make it a real supernatural threat. And if you do, about to do. there's your Call of Cthulhu right there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, would would Call of Cthulhu work? Yeah, it absolutely would. It's not. I mean, it's like, yeah, if you want to get super dark with it. I love the idea that maybe maybe rather than being Indiana, this is taking place in Massachusetts and the, the small town that these girls are in is Arkham. Right. Or maybe Arkham is the next town over. It's like, oh, there was that mysterious fire that caused all of this. How did all the information about this strange, dark crime? Oh, that's the thing we haven't mentioned, Rafe. We haven't mentioned the crime in question. Crazy Pete, the death of dear Johnny, who is turns out to be crazy pete's kid is inspired by truman capote's in cold blood you know this horrible murder in a small town and it's like no one in the town wants to talk about it so you could get uber dark with something like like there was a horrible murder maybe maybe the town is responsible for it maybe they they caused the fire or they summoned something they weren't supposed to that's why dear johnny doesn't have an actual name it's a like you find out that the the entity that it, they pulled is actually de johnny or something like that you know something <laughs> along those lines and these kids accidentally like find the bloody dagger in grandma's attic the kids do encounter a witch and the tarot reading does give them something and we we find out oh my god this is horrible we find out as the camera pans out for the bookends that the story they're telling is a therapist talking to four people who are in an insane asylum and they're all telling this story about what drove them mad um yeah i mean we could, we could <laughs> that i suppose i love how call of cthulhu always just puts you over the edge creatively every single time we bring it up (laughs) listen i've said this once i'll say it again call of cthulhu is the game that taught me that the story matters more than the mechanics right um like that revelation for me is definitely one of my top 10 rpg moments and it's probably in my top five because it is did realize that like surviving the game is not how you play the game. Yeah. Right. But good. I'm so glad you brought up Call of Cthulhu <laughs> and our wholesome coming of age 1970s all girl uh, kids on bike story. Good job, Rafe. Well done, sir. All right. I think on that note, we are done with this episode. 
on Now and Then. Join us in two weeks for our Now and Then intermission, where we'll discuss our second opinions and what we might have missed about Now and Then the first time around. I suspect there will be a lot about that. Oh, there's so much, so much to talk about. There's a lot of stuff we didn't discuss. we've got a ton of feedback already on this movie and on this topic. Drew has done extensive research of his own and such, so I'm sure we will be getting to that. We'll chat about what's grabbed our attention on Kickstarter, and we will select our next Kids on Bikes film. If you have opinions of your own about anything we've discussed today, you can join in the conversation. How, Drew? Uh, well, you can email us at the Never Say Die Podcast at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook at our Never Say Die Cast group. It is a private group, but just by asking to join, you'll automatically be accepted. Uh, we are on Twitter at Never Say Diecast, and I, I post on there quite a bit. Um, thanks to Chris Talent for our wonderful theme song and Megan Daly for our show artwork. And remember, even if your book ends, it's just an excuse to throw in some high-profile actresses to draw attention to your movie, Never Say Die. <laughs>